School District 73 and Interior Health combined for a virtual town hall meeting last night. SC-73 Superintendent Terry Sullivan moderated the event, and Kamloops Medical Health Officer Dr. Carol Fenton was on hand to answer any questions that parents may have had. Now, I spoke with Dr. Fenton today to follow up on the meeting, see what some of the more frequently asked questions were. If you want to see that whole 90-minute forum, you can find it online on the SD-73 Facebook page or its YouTube channel. I tried to ask some of those more frequently asked questions, if you were, as there were many basic questions that could use some clarification, something along the lines of, you know, what's the difference between a cluster, an outbreak, and an exposure event? So that's among the things we discussed. Here's my conversation with Kamloops Medical Health Officer, Dr. Carol Fenton. First of all, thank you so much for the time, as always. Really appreciate you joining me. Um, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so the first question I did want to ask is just in a general sense, how did the town hall go last night with School District 73? Were you happy with sort of how the process went and, and the, the inquiries you were getting? Yeah, I think it's really important to give people an opportunity to ask their questions and understand our processes so that we can work together better. Now, what were some of the more frequently asked questions? I do have some that I pulled specifically, but I'm wondering if you noticed any sort of theme that parents maybe had in terms of questions and concerns. Well, one thing that I noticed um, at this town hall as well as other town halls that I have done is the timeline, um, especially related to, you know, my child experience and exposure. Why am I hearing about it five or six days later? And so... Um, you know, giving me an opportunity to explain our process and, and why that happens, um, I think helps everyone understand um, what we do. Okay, so now kind of building on that, I wanted to just kind of go through some of the questions that I took out from last night and just sort of re-ask them in case anyone, you know, maybe didn't hear the answers or, sure. or you know, obviously there's more people in, in the general public than are probably on that uh, school board um, meeting last night. So I guess the first question is sort of what is the difference between a cluster, an exposure, and an actual outbreak? I think that's something that a lot of people are still struggling to wrap their heads around. Of course, and it, you know it is technical uh, jargon, and so it's it's very fair to ask and have that explained. An exposure is when, as any time we've identified that someone has attended a school setting or any other setting uh, during their infectious period, and we do an identification to see um, if anyone. Uh, met the definition of a close contact during that period. And so um, we do the investigation, we identify those people, we let them know that they need to self-isolate because they have been exposed. So that's an exposure and that is the most common thing that we see. Uh, the next level up is a cluster where we are seeing, you know, a number of cases that appear to be related that indicate to us that we need to be doing more than just the standard investigation. And so, you know, you will have see, seen that we've declared clusters at Big White, which is the ski hill outside of Kelowna, and we have a cluster in the Caribou-Chilcotin local health area where we were seeing increased transmission and we needed to enhance what we were doing in order to bring that under control. The next level up is the outbreak, and that's a very formal process where the MHO declares the outbreak. Um, we have 
um, enhanced resources sent in. There's usually enhanced cleaning. Uh, we have additional epidemiology support to analyze the cases and how they may or may not be related to each other. We'll have daily meetings to support the school or whatever setting it is um, to conduct any additional investigations to make sure that the school or the other facility is a safe place to be. And so they're just labels for different levels of intervention for what we do. Perfect. I think that was a really nice way to, to kind of lay things out because I know that's just something that people continue to struggle with, right? We hear the words uh, very, very frequently, but not necessarily meaning a whole lot to people at certain points. So appreciate that of explanation. Um, one thing I did see a lot of, of questions being asked about or sort of a, a theme was if a child is um, gets COVID positive, what is sort of the message, I guess, to, to the families that are connected to that child? So if a kid gets tested positive for COVID-19, is told they have to go home, obviously, because they have the virus, why are, you know, parents at that household, especially maybe if there is a, a teacher at that household, why are they not being asked to necessarily isolate? Uh, if they were a contact to the child, they would be asked to self-isolate as a close contact okay. to the case. The confusion is around when someone is self-isolating as a contact, why does their family not need to self-isolate? Okay. And that's because they're not a contact to a case, they're a contact to a contact. So they would only need to self-isolate if that person who is the contact does go on to develop COVID-19. And so at the household level, when we have a household case, um, the rate of transmission within the household setting is really high. So the likelihood that the household contacts go on to develop COVID is very high. However, in our school exposures and our workplace exposures, because those are controlled environments with COVID-19 safety plans in place, the rate of transmission to the contacts is much lower. And so that's why, you know, if, if you have capacity or you, you can't, risk having to self-isolate if the you know the person in your family um, does go on to develop COVID. It is wise to self-isolate from each other, but it's not a requirement. Okay, no, that's a great explanation as well. Appreciate that. Um, how does Interior Health determine if schools and teachers are, are contacted in terms of, of students who have tested positive for, for COVID? Like, will teachers always be notified? Like, what is the process, I guess, for uh, if a student tests positive, do teachers who are connected to that student always have to isolate, or how does that kind of work for staff? Uh, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So what, it, what happens when we get a positive notification for a school case is we get the result directly from the lab, and they're, they're labeled as school when they get tested, so we know that this is a school investigation. So the first thing that our communicable disease specialist will do is to phone the case or the case's family to get an understanding of the timelines, like when did the symptoms start? Were they contact with anyone that they know? Did they travel recently? To get an understanding of where it may have come from and when the infection might have started. Then with that information, they establish when the period of communicability was so then we know, you know, where 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 was this case in particular when they were infectious? And we know um, from you know what we've learned about COVID over the last year that um, people are generally infectious 48 hours before they develop symptoms. So that's why we do see school exposures before anyone knows that it's happened. Once we have that timeline, we're able to establish, okay, everywhere that this person has been, what precautions may or may not have been in place. And then we um, 
you know, we get their extracurricular and social contacts information directly from the family, and then we contact the school. The school corroborates the information that the family has given us, and they provide us with additional information, like what is the class schedule, what is the layout or the seating plan in the classroom, what kind of activities were taking place. And using all of that information, we determine whether or not someone in the class was also considered exposed. Often we take a very conservative approach where if we're not sure, we will ask people to self-isolate as a precaution just to ensure that school is a safe place to be. Now, speaking of making sure schools are safe, I did see a couple of questions come up in in regards to testing. Um, You know, this isn't something that's really been um, overly addressed at the provincial level, right? I know it's been talked about in long-term care homes with rapid testing, and Dr. Henry has kind of come out and said it's not necessarily the the most productive thing that could be done. Um, But I guess why, is there a reasoning why students maybe aren't uh, looked at to do more testing? Is there anything like... uh, guidelines, I suppose, in place from public health when it comes to testing of students? I know it's not happening, and, and obviously there's some parents who would like to see it happen. I just wondered if there's any response to that. So testing is a really sort of technical issue. Um, there are a lot of statistics involved in terms of, you know, our thresholds for testing, what is the population's pre-test probability that gives us the likelihood that we're going to have true positives false positives, true negatives, and false negatives. And so we want to make sure that we're using the test in the most appropriate way. So with the rapid test, for example, compared to the PCR test, which is our our NP swab or the gargle test, the rapid test has a fairly high rate of false negatives. So we're, um, you know, very cautious. Uh, around deploying the the rapid test in settings where we can't access the you know more accurate mm-hmm. test because we don't want people to get the negative test, assume that they are negative, and then not adhere to all of the safety precautions, and then you know have further exposures that could have been prevented. Okay. Um- one more question here, too, in regards to, to schools, but just given the number of exposure events that have occurred since Christmas, uh, a pretty substantial amount. Uh, there were five exposure events before the Christmas holidays, and there's been 42 exposure events in the 28 days since. Um, so just with that in mind, is there any concerns about the upcoming spring break? We heard from the Premier earlier this week. He said there's no plans to postpone spring break or cancel it in any way. I know Ontario decided to delay their spring break earlier this week. I don't really know how that's going to help anything, but um, just wondered, what are the concerns? Is there any concern from Interior Health about spring break upcoming and the potential for you know similar outbreaks? Not outbreaks, that's the wrong word. Similar um, increases in the number of exposure events as a result of a holiday period. So I'm always concerned about, you know, factors that could increase our levels of COVID activity. Um, I'm less concerned about spring break as I was about the winter holidays because, um, for one, there are fewer uh, events taking place during spring break that um, result in people gathering together indoors because that's the biggest driver of infection. Um, and then the other is that it's spring. It's hopefully going to be a bit nicer out and people can go do things outside mm-hmm. um, that are, are safe and healthy to do. So um, at this point, I'm not alarmed, I think. And, and you know, it is up to, to what people decide to do. Do they want to, um, you know, make healthy choices and, and, and avoid 
socializing with people outside of their household and, and following all the safety guidelines, then they can still, you know, have a break from school or work or whatever they are planning uh, and enjoy their life. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That, uh, you know, that delaying March break may or may not, you know, affect. So, you know, at this point, it's, it's up to the people uh, up to our communities to prevent these infections. And we know how to do it. We were doing an, a great job uh, ahead of the Christmas break, and we can do it again. Awesome. I think we can, too, and, and hopefully we'll see uh, people be responsible over the course of that spring break. One question unrelated to schools while I have you, Dr. Fenton, but just there was one new case uh, at Brocklehurst Gemstone Long-Term Care Home yesterday. Uh, just curious, you know, how are we seeing more positive cases come from that if everyone there has had a chance to receive the first dose of the vaccine? Is there any explanation as to why there might be a, a new case popping up there? I would love the answer to that question. Uh, as much as anyone else, and so we are investigating. Um, we don't have real-world effectiveness data in this population for a single dose of the vaccine, but I suspect it's you know lower um, mm -hmm. rates of immunity because we have seen some infections. So it'll be very interesting to see that data, but we're investigating and I really, really hope that we don't get any more cases yeah, in me, that facility. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much for the time, Dr. Fenton. I always appreciate you speaking with me and uh, I think it was a very informative town hall last night. So really, uh, I think from the community standpoint, appreciating that uh, you took the time to do that. So really thank you for the time today and we'll catch up again down the road. Of course. Nice talking to you. All right, there you go. There's Dr. Carol Fenton, medical health officer for Kamloops. And of course, if you heard that last question, that was in regards to the one new case that popped up at Brocklehurst Gemstone Long-Term Care Home yesterday, while today getting the updated numbers, five new cases coming to that facility. So she was really, really hoping we didn't see any additional cases while it took 24 hours to see several more come into play here. So definitely some concerns there. It would be interesting to see what the investigation does provide. It was a staff member yesterday that was the confirmed additional case. Not sure what the breakdown is here today, but either way, it doesn't really matter, right? The fact that those people had access to a vaccine and yet are still getting sick is is concerning. I mean, it's not like it was an impossibility. We knew that was possible. The uh, immunity effectiveness is not 100%. So it's never going to be a guarantee that we're going to avoid the virus. But nonetheless, that's what we were hoping, especially in long-term care settings, is to avoid uh, seeing more cases come to fruition and avoid seeing outbreaks last longer. But this one, um, well, it's got at least 28 more days now because we have to wait for two full cycles of the virus to go through before this outbreak declared over.